The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Welcome to Business is Boring. Zero is the business success story that has defined the SaaS ecosystem here. Companies like Vend, EasyVet, Timely, Figured, and LawView, and everyone else have learned from the playbooks and expertise built up by Zero. And although Zero is an accounting company, it was also an unexpectedly delightful experience and brand. And that too has helped influence so many things that could have been super dry. Philip Fehrlinger was co-founder and design leader for Xero, designing the reconciliation feature people still love today and the brand idea and tagline around do beautiful business. Today, he is co-CEO and founder at Upstock, a hospo wholesale ordering app where he is taking his experience to design a better business and product. To talk his path from the US to New Zealand, the zero journey, including a recovery from the highs and upstock today, Philip joins us now. Hey, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Awesome to be here. So this is very exciting uh, mm. for me, as um, your work at Zero was hugely influential to a lot of the stuff that we did uh, at Vend, both as like a brand and a product, and the way that our company operated. And a lot of the people that you worked with uh, gave so much kind of time and helped us all kind of learn from what you're up to. So yeah, just at the top there um, to, to to let you know well, that, that it's I, like a, this is this is a fan session. Thank you. And well, uh, you know. Uh, I have to say that we were also heavily inspired by what you were doing. And, you know, I think it's that's the beautiful thing about a startup ecosystem is that everyone's in, influencing each other and, you know, upping the game. And, you know, so that's to me is the the fun part of it. Yeah, that's too kind of you. <laughs> um, <laughs> shall we start right from the back? It's really interested in your experience in the U.S., where you were right in the Silicon Valley world before you came to New Zealand mm. and got involved with, you know, bringing some of those ideas here, tell me about your first job and how it was you ended up working on kind of like a, a, a mobile phone ahead of its time with Apple royalty. Yeah, sure. So uh, I was studying, I was at university and uh, I was studying industrial design, which is the product design used to be called, you know, refer to industrial design, hardware design. And... Um, we had a project call about inventing the future, and this is 1990, and so the year 2000 is looming. And what are the products going to be um, in the future? And so I was doing a lot of travel at the time, and I had my Walkman, I had a whole stack of cassettes, I had you know Let's Go, and all these guys that I would take with me. And it's a big haul, and it's it's really heavy, and you know when you're backpacking, you don't want any of that. And I just you really wanted this. Thing I could just hold in my hand that had all that. And so I'd, I'd already, you know, I'd been using computers since I was a little kid. And so it was, it was just kind of my natural, you know, everything gravitates to a computer in my brain. And um, so, yeah, I, I designed a phone that had a, just a touch screen. There was no, it was just a screen and a tablet to go with it. So a companion, these two companion devices some people might recognize that as an iPhone and an iPad, um, but this was 1990. So by comparison, a mobile phone at the time, they were called car phones because there was nothing mobile about them. You actually you know, had a suitcase that you had to carry around. And then you know, computer screens were the size of washing machines. And so, but it was pretty clear that all that was going to you know, shrink down. Like you just think ahead um, and it just seemed really obvious to me. And um, yeah, it was just something that I wanted. And so I designed that and then I found, uh, heard about a startup in Silicon Valley. So I was, that was in Philadelphia where I grew up 
at uni and then um, heard about this Silicon Valley company called General Magic that was in stealth mode. The founders of Apple, the Macintosh team, the original Macintosh team were all behind it. And it was top secret what they were doing, but there's rumors floating around that they were doing a, you know, some kind of mobile device. And so I uh, reached out to them. I reached out to Apple. I reached out to Sony. I want, you know, somewhere I wanted to be able to actually do the thing that, that I had in mind, this dream of mine. And so, yeah, General Magic, um, you know, took me up and actually I got a couple offers from, from those other companies and General Magic was like, I get to work with the gods of Silicon Valley making this device, uh, absolutely no brainer and moving to San Francisco and being in the heart of Silicon Valley. And so, yeah, it was an absolutely incredible experience. And so there's a, actually the, uh, recently, a couple of years ago, a, an amazing documentary came out about it, um, called General Magic, the movie. And uh, highly, highly worth watching. And so the company ultimately failed. And, um, and we were working on you know, an iPhone and an iPad at that time. But the technology was just, as you can imagine, in 1990 or it was 1992 when I did the internship, uh, which is, just wasn't there. And so it was just too slow, too clunky. And uh, it was just too, too much, a little bit too ahead of its time. So it took another 15 years um, to really... Um, come to life. Wow. And just for kind of reference there, your next uh, big, big kind of um, project that I saw on your site with the Beastie Boys was around mm. 95, was it? And that was a CD-ROM that actually bundled in the first version of Internet Explorer. Yeah. So you were trying to do the iPhone <laughs> when, mm. when Internet Explorer was still not even a thing. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about working on the iPhone at General, or the, working on this mobile phone at General Magic was they were a consortium of different companies and Sony was one of them. And I spent a lot of time with the Sony team and I was like, you made the Walkman, let's make a digital Walkman and I can listen to any song anywhere. And they were like, oh, okay, yep, cool kid, whatever. And just kind of brushed me off. Um, and so that experience, you know, I could see what they were doing at General Magic was just not really, it, it was at, too ahead of its time. So I wanted to do something that was, that could get released immediately. And I was just really frustrated that like all the stuff that I was working on was two years in the future, you know, would be released maybe. Um, and so my brother and I, um, you know, we, we collaborated as kids and kind of were doing lots of projects together and on computers. And we were doing video was just all of a sudden emerging as a possibility on computers, but it was just little postage stamp size video, very, you know, jerky and grainy and, and terrible stuff. But we figured out a way to actually do it full screen, high quality, high fidelity video. And, um, you know, I was a big fan of the Beastie Boys. And so I wanted to do the ultimate fan experience, build, build something like that. That was something that I wanted. Again, this keeps, you know, here's this thing I want to see in the world. So, uh, let's figure out a way to make it happen. And so I put together to, as a proof of concept, um, I, I prototyped something and that was something I learned actually from the Apple team. Um, and the idea was a online music store. Again, a modem at this time was this exotic piece of computer equipment that very few people had. And um, I think it was like 9,600 baud or 14.4 or whatever. Can't believe I remember these numbers. And um, so, you know, the idea of doing this online music store and being able to sell CDs through the, you know, the, the internet or whatever the internet was at that point. And uh, so I built this really cool interactive prototype. You could you, um, listen to music, you could watch music. And I shopped it around to all the record labels and I got meetings with all the record labels and they were like, uh, this is computers. We do CDs. Like you're, you, you, you're, you're confused. Um, and then just shoot me out the door. And then I found this kid in Indiana that was doing a, um, a fan site for the Beastie Boys. And I emailed him and I was like, Hey, it'd be really cool if we could combine forces and maybe approach the Beastie Boys together. And, um, all of a sudden my internet connection got interrupted because you could have it on the phone line and the phone rang and it was very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> and it was him. He like literally called me as soon as he got the email. And um, he said, look, the Beastie Boys were just here. I thought they came to sue me. Actually, they came to hire me. And um, so do you have anything I can show them? 
So fortunately, I had this prototype. I, I shipped it over to him on a SciQuest drive, if anyone is old enough to remember that. And, uh, and yeah, they had to look at it and they were blown away. And so the Beastie Boys were my first client. I started a business, turntable.com, and you know, got to tour with them, got to build this thing that was my ultimate you know, fan fantasy. Went down to their studio. We, um, again, because of this relationship with Apple, we got first access to QuickTime VR. So it was the, the first commercially available VR platform. And we built that into the CD-ROM. And you know, as you said, so Internet Explorer, uh, we tried to do a, a deal with Netscape. They fobbed us off. So we went to Bill Gates and he said, sure, here, have it for free. And uh, and then um, it had all kinds, you know, it was just breakthrough in every every possible way. Um, and yeah, it was pretty amazing. Awesome to be at kind of the... Um the start of so many of those uh, massive themes that rolled on from there. Mm. What led you from that work in Silicon Valley to New Zealand? And what was the difference like arriving here? Yeah, yeah. Um, really interesting. So the dot-com bubble was, you know, just in full flight. And um, it just, living in San Francisco, all of a sudden just became kind of hectic and all about money and VCs and money and VCs and the, and we just had a, our, our first child and all of a sudden and Columbine happened and we were told, Oh, you, you have a kid. So you need to start enrolling them into high school now. So that means you need to backtrack to like your kindy and, you know, enroll them now. And so we started looking and you have to get in a good neighborhood because you don't want to be in the certain schools and blah, blah, blah. And you know, these schools all had metal detectors and guards and it's just like, no, I do not want to live like this. Absolutely not. Um, and so we looked at a couple places. We, we thought, well, okay, he's a little infant. We can go anywhere, you know, before he's in school. Let's just travel and kind of see see what other places might be an interesting place to live. We went to Vancouver was high on the list. And so we went there and we loved it. And there was no tech industry, unfortunately. And however, we there was a woman that I kind of new from San Francisco called Katerina Fake. And um, I'd seen that she just moved to, she was an early blogger and I saw that she moved to Vancouver. So I reached out to her and we met with her and her boyfriend, Stuart Butterfield. And we, you know, they showed us around Vancouver. We had a great time. And, um, but again, there was just no tech industry. Even they were doing kind of weird enterprisey things in tech that were just obscure. And so, yeah, uh, we love Vancouver, but it didn't work out. Then, um, but, you know, Stuart Butterfield kind of comes back around in the story. Uh, we, then 9-11 happened. And uh, all of a sudden, the kind of the, 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 the vibe in the U.S. was really awful. And George Bush and, you know, the economy went to hell. And, you know, so just everything was, you know, we, we wanted to get out while, while everything was good. And then it just started collapsing. And so... Uh, Coincidentally, we bumped into some people, friends of friends that um, were from New Zealand, used to live in San Francisco, and they told us about New Zealand, and we were like, wow, that's amazing. And I looked into Australia, and like the tech scene there, was, I was like, if Vancouver doesn't have a tech scene, what, you know, Australia is not going to have anything. And it was in the dark ages, it was really behind. And I was like, New Zealand, forget it, no way. And um, immediately after dinner, meeting these people, went online. And I was like, shit, three of my heroes are based in New Zealand. I had no idea. and Zed was Mars or Jupiter. Like it was just some other planet to me. And um, so Che Tamahori was one of them. And he made this amazing 3D director um, shockwave technology that was incredible. And then um, Aaron Dustin was doing uh, Morse Media and NZMusic.com. And, um, uh, totally for blanking on, um, mm. anyway, uh, search bots. Uh, so a guy was doing this amazing flash and search technology. Uh, and I, so I contacted everyone and, you know, came down here immediately. Che was like, look, you Americans, you ring up and you say, you know, you're all talk. And I was like, cool, I'm, I'm going to hang up now. I'm going to book my flight and then I'll call you back. And so I did and came down here and was really, really blown away by New Zealand, by the people, by what 
the talent here that it was absolutely mind blowing. I thought I was coming from, you know, the Mecca of digital technology and, um, and I was really floored what, you know, what was happening in New Zealand and Kiwis had no idea how good they were. It was, it was, it was astonishing. And so, yeah, so we, we, you know, we ended up here and, and my wife and I, to this day, it's the best decision we've ever made. So that was 22 years ago. So cool. And, you know, zero that, you know, you came to co-found in Wellington. I mean, that was kind of the second or third rodeo for a couple of the kind of other founders of that company. Mm. You know, Rodri with Aftermail first, Mm. you know, like they were already um, established and experienced Mm. tech entrepreneurs, you know. So that's kind of cool, hey, like not Mm. knowing kind of New Zealand had a scene, but there's these you know, small group of people, your your Rowan Simpsons and a few mm. people, your Sam Hawkins and stuff who've um, yep. who've been through a couple of rodeos by that time. Tell us about how you came to be a co-founder at Zero. Yeah, so uh interestingly, so this is where it gets back to Stuart Butterfield. So he ended up uh after we left a couple of years later, he he started a company and it was doing a game called Game Never Ending. And quite frankly, I hated the game. But there was this feature in the game called Shoebox, where you upload your photos. And I was like, "What? this is the coolest thing I've ever used. This is brilliant. Please just fo- do this. Like, forget the game, do this. And um, I think, you know, that certainly was, I don't, I don't think that was just my advice. I think a lot of people were giving him that feedback. And so they ended up founding Flickr. And so Flickr was the first real online social media company, first online SaaS business, it really kind of set the template. It was the web 2.0 kind of um, uh, front runner. And um, as soon as I saw it, so I was working at a web agency and we were doing amazing work. We were doing NewZealand.com and it was incredibly fun. But we also had lots of government clients and I was just like, no, no, no. I can make a product now on online. So I'm going to do that. And uh had some ideas for a product, an education product, a you know kids peer peer to peer kid learning platform, and um, so I put together kind of a pitch. And the problem was that nobody in New Zealand was there were no startups, there was no software scene. Trade Me was still hadn't sold at that point, so Trade Me was a tech success story, but um, you know that was kind of. It was an internal, it was a bit of a fluke in a way. Like it wasn't, you know, it didn't establish a scene at that point. And um, then I stumbled across this blogger that was aligned, perfectly aligned with exactly how, what I was thinking, how I was thinking about startups, about technology, about business. And so I emailed him and I said, hey, I'd love to, you know, uh, pitch you this idea. We met up for lunch, hit it off. We were like finishing each other's sentences. It was just like this kind of magic moment. And then he was like, okay, let me pitch you an idea, accounting 2.0. And obviously it was Rod that, you know, I was having lunch with. And um, I was like, yep, I totally get it. Um, Because the one thing that I'm daunted by, you know, considering doing a startup is the finance side of it. And I've used all the, you know, QuickBooks and and, uh, MYOB and it's my absolute nightmare. The worst thing I could possibly imagine is dealing with that. I was like, yeah, cool. All right. Um, you know, you, and he had a background in accounting and, uh, and, and he, so at this point, trade me had just sold and he was involved with, he was a director of trade me. And, um, and he said, you know, accounting 2.0, I'm leaving after mail. Um, I'm, it's about to sell. And so this is going to be my next thing. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll do this for two years. Similarly, I'll come to New Zealand for two years. I'll do, you know, zero for two years. And then I get to do my own startup after that. And I get to build an accounting system that I will actually want to use. And, you know, the first thing I said to him in that meeting was, uh, the problem is, you know, we should really pull data down from the banks. Like that would be the right way to do this. And I think that could be a real problem. And he said, this is New Zealand. We can get into all the banks and no problem. And so, yeah, that, you know, that, that was like 2006, June, 2006. (sighs) And that journey with zero, you know, like there's this real thing that once something's successful, everyone just kind of takes it for granted like it was always going to be a success and like, of course, it was easy. But from someone who was a really close observer and like a very early zero customer, um, 
like the cynicism in the media and the outright hostility to the idea of a company that was going to lose money for years to build its customer base, that was operating with the idea of SaaS metrics. So the lifetime value of a customer will mean it's worth losing money for multiple years. That was so hard for the Mm. business establishment and media here to get. And it was almost a punchline for years as it, even as it grew, doesn't matter what it did, there was always just the question, well, when's it gonna when's yep. it gonna pay a dividend? When's it gonna be profitable? What was it like being part of that team, building something out like that, you know, despite it all? Yeah, it's interesting. Like when we there's a whole uh, story behind the name Zero, and when we decided on that name, we were like, Okay, this is there's gonna be backlash. They're just gonna throw this in our face and you know, make all kinds of puns around we're making zero money and all this. <laughs> and and of and course they did. and they did, <laughs> but yeah. we were ready. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you know. First of all, you know, all credit to Rod for being just kind of fervently confident and and masterminding kind of uh, an incredible uh, strategy. And so we were absolutely cowboy approach. And so from our first conversations, Rod was like, we're listing on the NZX. And I was like, okay. Um, And in the States, you know, startups listing was just slowly starting to emerge. Like back in the 90s, so late 97, 90, really 98, 99, that's when the dot-com bubble happened and everyone was floating. But nothing like that in New Zealand. There was nothing even remotely close. And then we... the the plan was that we were going to get listed um, uh, a year after we launched. And actually, when I say launched, it's not even launching the product. I mean, launching the business. And uh, I was like, mate, you're dreaming. Like, (laughs) just no possibility of that, but cool, whatever. Uh, uh, And I remember Rod, um, in in the first days of us working together, he was looking up on the internet, uh, Learjet's. It's like this is the, I'm gonna you know get one of these and like this is the, this is the kind of the the north star for me, and uh, so yeah I you, you have to remember this is 2006 so people were freaked out that um, their accounting data was going to be in the cloud or and the, the, even that word the cloud didn't exist we had to kind of really um, promote and and educate the market that that this idea of the cloud and you know the th- the trick was. To, to simply explain to them, uh, you have online banking, right? Cool. So all your real money is actually already in the cloud. We're just, this is just data about your money. So cool your jets, just chill out. And that that generally did, you know, make people relax a bit. And it was pretty incredible to get that early traction. And so from internally, that early traction really was all that we cared about. And so whatever noise the media was making really didn't matter. We could see, we could see what we were building and the, just the, 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 the exponential growth. And, um, yeah. And it was, you know, it was tough in those early days. Um, you know, we had shareholders that were pretty aggro and very, very, um, you know, media that was also, you know, uh, attacking us. And being a public company, because, There wasn't the sophisticated venture capital market in New no, Zealand no. To, to fund it. That's why we did I mean, you yeah. wouldn't choose to go there. But being public meant that everyone had something to write about because you had to publish all of yes. your accounts in it's a way brutal. that private companies, you know, you can you can kind of present a different picture to yeah. the front than yeah. <laughs> your actual numbers. But, but Rod yeah. did a very good job of still, even though we were public, he, mm. again, he's a great showman and he really, he did explain the story and he really... Mm. Uh, painted the picture and the vision. And, and I think that that really, and people could see the, you know, the people who, who backed us and believed in us really did. And, and I think they were all taking a punt, but they were like, there's something to this. It, it makes sense. And, you know, it, it wasn't a huge risk for a lot of people to, to back it. And the people that did back it, you know, it's one of those rare thousand X returns, Mm. dollar at IPO well over a hundred dollars a share today you know yep. and that's a remarkable story for something that was accessible mm. where so much of vc isn't accessible unless you're a wholesale investor and rich yep. and 
buying into funds and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, so cool. And like into the product because like, you know, Zero was a very unlikely success in many things, right? Like how could something that would change accounting come from a very small market on the, you know, other yep. side of the world from everything? And so much of that came down to the fact that people loved it so much they would harangue their accountants to start using it and tell their friends about it, mm. which is pretty rare for, you know, a yeah. grudge kind of software purchase um, with accounting. Tell us about the product reconciliation feature because I think that's something that, you know, everyone who's ever used Xero, uh, in one second you go, oh, my word, I see how this is different. Right. Yeah, I mean, again, that was uh, really fascinating how quickly I came up with that idea. And um, so it was really there from very, like I said, that first conversation with Rod had a first inkling, like we need data from the banks. But, you know, the thing, so we did, I did a lot of user research um, when we started out and both Rod and Craig, Craig's CTO, um, were giving me like death stares because I just spend day after day talking to customers and they're like, you're supposed to be designing stuff. Why aren't you on the computer making pictures and graphics and stuff? And I was like, because I need to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. That's why. And so I looped them into to that process. And so I spent weeks putting sticky notes up on the, the wall, just trying to figure out, you know, who, who are we working for? Who are the players? Who are the users? How they interact? How does it all work? And so, you know, in talking to small business owners and to accountants, you know, it quickly emerged that cash flow is the, you know, is, is the absolute um, essential ingredient into either success or failure. And um, just, again, digging into that deeper, talking to customers and users, or, you know, they weren't customers or users at that point, but people, prospects, um, and just understanding, you know, their workflow, their process. And realizing that this bank reconciliation is the key to, you know, understanding your cash flow. And at the time, the only way to do that was you would get a bank statement in the mail 30 days, you know, every month. So the best you could do if you were really on top of your game is you could see your cash flow from the last 30 days. And we thought that was absurd. And then the reality was that people hate it because you know the other the other real kind of um strategic of objective of ours was existing software existing accounting software was designed for paying taxes that's that was its fundamental purpose make sure that you pay the right taxes nobody goes into business to pay taxes and this is why they hate accounting because they lose at the end of it it's just all bad it's all it's all pain and um, so we wanted to build software that was designed for business and accounting was just a byproduct. So it would do it automatically figure out your taxes for you. But, the, you know, understanding running your business um, was the core function. Uh, and so that cash flow component was absolutely critical. And the reality was, even though people, you know, at, at their best could be doing it once a month, in reality, they're doing it once a year which is disastrous for cash flow. You have no idea. You're flying blind. You're making a mess, a, just a, a train wreck of, of financial decisions. And at the end of the year, you, can, you can't make sense of what happened. And so it's just kind of all, uh, all a spaghetti of, of bad decisions that you can't undo. It's too late. And so we wanted to make it as real time as possible. And so um, I you know, this idea of, of bringing in bank data and being able to do that in real time was fundamental in my view. And then again, there's this stigma of accounting. And so everyone hates it. It's painful, tedious. So how can we flip that? And, you know, just thinking about it for a second, like most games are, have some foundation in, in money. So Monopoly, like the most popular game in the world is, you know, a money game. And so how can we bring some of that to this? How can we make it? And at the time, I, I, our kids and I, we would play um, Star Wars Lego and it's a really collaborative game. And I was like, there's something I want to bring that. This is a collaboration between accountants and, and small businesses. How do we bring that same sense of collaboration that that Star Wars Lego game had? 
And my, I had, my son was three at the time. And every night after work, he'd insist that we play memory game, the card game where you flip, you know, you have a deck of cards, there's pairs, and you flip them all down. And then you have to flip cards over and find a matching pair. And I reluctantly, you know, would just, all right, fine, let's play it. And, but as soon as you get going, you can't stop. As soon as you find a match, it's just this like, you know, dopamine hit, like, oh, I won. It's just, you know, you could have won the lottery. It feels like, you know, I'm, gen- I'm a genius. I did this. I mastered this. And so you just get hooked in. And you just want another. You want another dopamine hit. And I realized this is a bank reconciliation that we're doing. We're taking transactions from the bank, you know, number, our numbers from the bank and matching that to the numbers in our accounting system. And if we could do that automatically with a press of a button, if all somebody had to do was click OK, and the computer does all the pattern matching um, for you, then that seemed to me like a magical way to do. And so I presented that to um, Rod and Craig, and they were like, <laughs> yeah, kind of interesting idea, but uh, you, 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 you seem to be losing the plot here. Like we're building an accounting system. And um, I said, look, let's do some user testing, did some user testing. And I was, I didn't know. I thought maybe I'm really fucking this up and like, this is, I've got it all wrong. And so I needed to do user testing to just understand. And shit, people came in and they were like predicting exactly what would happen next. And it was just astonishing. And fortunately, Rod and Craig, I brought them into the, we had an office, not much bigger. Yeah, a little tiny, a little bit bigger than this. And so everyone was in the room and they could overhear the conversations. And uh, and then Rod and Craig were like, oh man, that, that's amazing. People said to us, they were like, when can I sign up? Oh, this is amazing. I want this. I'll sign up now. And we were like, wow, that was incredible. And that, that happened the first time. And I was like, yeah, first time lucky. Let's see. And we brought in six people and all of them exactly the same. And then Craig was like, that's too hard to build. Are you kidding me? we didn't have the terms at the time you're talking about AI and machine learning. And we're, we're trying to get rushed to get a whole accounting system out the door. You're talking about one little component of it. And I was like, I know exactly how I I've done a lot of coding in my days. And it was Craig did not take kindly to that. And so they said, no, absolutely not. You have to, you know, do something that we can build. And so I designed something that we could build, brought people in for user testing and they were like, uh, can I go now? You, why, do you, why are you forcing me to do this? This is, I hate this. And again, person after person. And so then we had a huddle afterwards and it was just like, so which one do you want to do? Do you want to do the one they hate? Just like every other piece of software or do you want to do the one they love? And so it was a pretty you know, easy decision at that point. And like such a turnaround from, you know, a terrible experience of trying to find your receipts and highlighting things and sending boxes of, you know, things to your accountant and everything being three months late because accountants for some reason operate six months to a year later (laughs) than when you actually need to know information and that's normal. Like just that kind of like absolute flip and that that, that moment. Um, Yeah, so, so cool to dig into that. And that idea around bringing, you know, the customer and a good experience and play and things people enjoy to a space that could be super dry. And yep. I think, you know, Zero has been incredibly influential for so many other companies that could be really dry, yep. not doing it. And that tagline, you know, that the idea of like do beautiful business or beautiful accounting software, like that was radical, mm. right? To go accounting software would be beautiful. Yeah, we, we and that was absolutely critical that we had to change the perception and we needed to change people's behavior so that they would actually use their accounting system and they would be engaged. Um, and to get any attention, like uh, another accounting software, like when I, when we started out and people would say, hey, so what do you do? I'm like, I do accounting software. And they'd be like, oh, okay, you can just, just stop right now. Like, I don't want to hear anymore. Like <laughs> looking over your shoulder for someone you like, talk yeah, to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so we really had to find a way to flip that. And, um, so we had to inject fun into it and be cheeky and playful with everything that we do and really design it to be a, a like consumer like experience so that it is really, it has 
playful branding. It has color. You know, most business software is pretty monotone and very serious and stodgy, and um, especially if it has anything to do with money. And so we really had to, you know, get people's attention and we had to turn that perception around of this is something I hate to this could be something fun. And what was really interesting is that we started exactly when Twitter started. And so we were getting all these mentions on Twitter and people were saying things like zero is this sexy accounting software. I can't believe I'm saying this and it's, it's fun. It's addictive. All the things that we, you know, one of my first kind of uh, presentations to the team was like, I want to turn this around to like, people are going to say sexy, fun, addictive. And then to hear actual customers using those exact words was absolutely mind blowing. Just, I, I, I thought I was kidding myself, you know, that we'd be able to do that. <laughs> and then early, early days, we, we it started happening. And so the thing about that that, you know, I quickly realized is that us saying fun, sexy, addictive, nobody will believe us. It'll just be like, oh boy, you you really, you know, think a lot of yourself. But a customer saying that. And this is, they're not saying it to us. They're just proclaiming this out on Twitter and just sharing their kind of newfound passion. And, um, and that, that, that idea of amplifying the voice of the customer, that it's not us talking about ourselves, that it's our customers talking about us, that is so vital. And, and then that idea of injecting fun into everything we do. So we started doing our own roadshows and our own conferences, and we made sure that these are parties. You made book bookkeepers into rock stars. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, that, that's that's amazing. And and it was a movement. It was a cult movement, and it was absolutely incredible. And you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm starting to we're starting to experience that now with Upstock. I was just here at a at a show. We did a trade show, and to have that cult like people coming up to you and saying, "Oh my God, this has changed my life. This is amazing." And so I'm just getting those feelings again. Getting that kind of feedback again is absolutely phenomenal. Awesome, and we'll be back in a moment to talk exiting and decompressing from zero, upstock, and what's next. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Okimai ano, we're back with Philip Fielinger, co-CEO of Upstock. Now, we've covered the, the highs there, and, you know, so, so interesting um, to hear about the process behind some of those ideas uh, that have been so influential, I reckon. Tell me about how stepping out of zero, though, led to a period of like, really kind of like decompressing from Mm. having been part of something so all-consuming and such a growth journey. And then where does that leave you when you decide to step out? Mm. Yeah, it was was an incredibly difficult decision to make. Um, And, you know, kind of what, 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 triggered it was we'd been growing just absurdly fast and large in terms of the team. And so in the previous years, we'd grown from 150 people to 300 people. So doubled. And that was extremely hard. The following year, we grew from 300 to 600. And I just thought, oh my God, this is because, you know, bringing on that many people, new people into the business, having to explain everything. And then the following year, we went from 600 to 1,200 people. And that level of growth, and I was flying to San Francisco. So we had cities all over the world, and I was flying to San Francisco and Melbourne all over and just you know beat down from jet lag, just had permanent jet lag. Um, and the, the, the exhaustion of the, the 
having to assimilate that many people into the business and, you know, help them understand what we're doing, how to do it, and then, you know, get them aligned. You know, 600 people that are brand new and it's like chickens with their heads, you know, cut off. It was, it was, it was quite challenging. And, um, and the people that were coming in were just kind of, you know, was shifting from that entrepreneurial um, startup, you know, I'm taking big risks here, but I think it's worth it to more corporate people that were like, you know, I'm used to flying first class and, you know, I have big teams and big budgets and, you know, corporate shit. And um, <laughs> you, go, you go from the pirates to the reliable people. And yes. like, it's a, it's a culture change. Yeah. 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 And I was just like, and I was caught in the middle. I was, you know, um, we, we were a very flat company. And then all of a sudden we had this C-suite. C, like we had, you know, a few C people. Then all of a sudden we had like, tw- it felt like 20 C people. Um, so, you know, chief this, chief that. And, and it was a very different culture all of a sudden. And then there were people, you know, in the trenches that were really confused, really, you know, struggling and and there was this disconnect between those two cultures that and I was trying to, you know, be the go between between those and um, yeah, it was, re- it was really challenging, really tough, and um, and and I felt like I still had so much to do. Like there was so much, you know, opportunity, and it was, it was still a phenomenal. I I was incredibly thrilled with the team I was able to build up, and it was my dream team of designers and engineers and and, uh, creatives. And, but I just was like, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting a wall here. And so I took three months off and I just, I wanted to decide, is this burnout or is this, you know, is, am I ready to move on? And so I did a bit of a, everyone called it an eat, pray, love tour. And so, um, I went, uh, to Mexico where my brother lives and learned to surf. And I went on a, a camping trip with the family down the South Island and, um, and then I went to a meditation retreat and, you know, my takeaway from that was as I started to like, and I completely shut off. I did not pick up the phone. I mean, I didn't pick up the phone to do work. Um, I, I really shut off from work completely. And then as I started like, okay, can I get back into this? I was like, fuck no, like, no, this is chaos. And I'm just, I'll, I'll just throw my, I'll just tear me apart. And so, uh, yeah, I made the really hard decision to, to leave. And I thought, cool, well then that's, that's over and done with. And, um, I can sit back and chill now. And I spent a lot of time like learning to surf and really just getting beaten down by waves and loving it. Like it was very therapeutic to just get pummeled by waves. And, uh, and I, I got a life coach and that was incredibly therapeutic, but it was still this really, I was not ready for it. This process of um, detaching, you know, my whole identity was wrapped up in zero and, and my whole day, my whole, everything, you know, my routine, my, my mode of thinking. And, um, and so, you know, I wanted to spend more time with the family and that was amazing until my wife was like, you can, you can get a job now. Like that would be, I think you're ready. <laughs> she was sick of having me around the house, like um, playing puzzles and just surfing all day. And, um, and I felt really uh, restless, like after a while, like it was really good. Um, and I was still frazzled. Like my sleep just was shot and it still is something that I have to really guard, protect my sleep. Um, I think that like permanent jet lag just never has, has, is something that I, I just need to be very protective of. And, um, then I started, I was doing investing in various startups and I was advising various startups and that was really, really exciting and awesome to be able to pass on my knowledge. And I got involved with the university Massey, uh, a little bit and just wanted to, you know, I was like, I've got all these, you know, experiences and, and ideas and skills that I'd love to share with everyone. And, uh, and I even started a podcast <laughs> and, um, then the startups I was working with, it was really the ones that were doing well was really thrilling. And then the ones that were floundering is really frustrating. Cause it's like, they come back to me with the same problems, you know, week after week, month after month. And I was like, we talked about this, here's, you know, and they just would, you know, 
tread water. And um, it was really frustrating. And I was working with like some really, you know, very new startups that, you know, have not, have not emerged. And then, but a lot of great startups. So like Story Park and Millinote, Deputy was at that point was a huge company already. And so it was like, you know, everything from early stage to late stage and, and scale-ups. And, um, and then, yeah, what, uh, a friend of mine approached me about, you know, he's like heard I'm doing advisory stuff and, and had an idea. Not he didn't just have an idea. He, um, this is, so this is Matt Watson who owns uh, Fox and Fizz, iconic Kiwi drink brand, and um, and he said, "Look, I've got this horrible problem of uh, I get all these orders in all these terrible ways. You know, f- uh, I literally he literally still had a fax machine because customers insisted, and you know, emails in the middle of the night, texts in the middle of the night, phone calls in the middle of the night, and they're all garbled." And lots of mistakes happening. You know, somebody won't see the text, won't see the email. And so an order is missed or is misunderstood. Um, and he said it was really causing chaos in his business. Um, and so he actually hired a dev agency to build him some software to fix it. And he said it completely transformed my business. And I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. And he said, actually, I've my customers now are wanting to use the software. And I was like, that's really interesting. Yes, keep talking, tell me more. And so my first reaction, though, was like, um, I, you know, th- this has got to be a solved problem, what you're talking about. This is e-commerce, essentially. Um, and uh, e-commerce is pretty ubiquitous now. It's pervasive. It's changed the entire world. So maybe th- you just haven't found, there's this software out there that exists. You just haven't found it. And so I dug around to find some software. And there, there, were, there were just, you know... There were inventory systems. So my first instance, because at a zero and inventory system, I was like, they must have functionality to do this. And they did, but it was an afterthought. It was like a really a bolt-on, you know, maybe we can make some, you know, additional revenue from this thing that just kind of is half-baked. Um, and and then, you know, as I dug further and further, and because Matt wasn't a tech founder, um, I, unlike all the other advisory work I did, I had to actually get my hands dirty and um, get on the tools again. And it was so thrilling. It was such a thrill. It just was like, I got high. It was just absolutely that addictive, like, okay, cool. All right, I can solve this and do that. And so I met with with um, people and, you know, again, pot- potential customers. And I was just really horrified the way people were working. That they were... You know, these are businesses that these are um, food and beverage businesses, hospitality businesses that are eking out margins, and they are working in these ways that takes hours out of their day, doing silly admin stuff that's breaking their business. Is actually they're they're shipping the wrong things, which causes all kinds of waste um, in terms of food waste, in terms of um, miles, delivery miles that they have to re-deliver things and pick things up. And, you know, the business obviously is paying for all of that. And it's just craziness. And it's, they're, 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 their tools are literally medieval tools. So they're, they have diary books that they're writing in. It's like and, a scribe in yes, the corner. Yes, exactly. Like a <laughs> scrolling parchment that we're, you know. Like, yeah. and, um, and they would they'd write in these books and they'd have highlighters and they would, it was all coded color coded and you know and these are hundreds of orders that they're taking in a day and then they transfer that to a spreadsheet and then they transfer that to the accounting system every step of the way mistakes are being made and so it's just riddled with 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 mistakes and problems and so to me um i was just like this this this, we've got to put a stop to this nonsense this is an easy problem to solve this is ludicrous and i would love to solve this problem for people and i can't believe that so, you know, I was right. You know, I was right that the the consumer world, um, e-commerce is ubiquitous. But in the B two B world, it's nineteen ninety nine or nineteen, you know, twelve ninety nine. Like it's it's really um, in the dark ages. And the amount of waste that's causing around the world, like supply chains around the world, is just astronomic. And so it felt like there was a you know and you. I think everyone wants to chip in in some way and do something that will reverse our, you know, trajectory of crashing into the wall, the the econo- or environmental wall. 
Um, and then, but you know, it is this making, helping make these business both environmentally and economically sustainable, you know, it was just the kind of the fundamental purpose that we were striving for. And food and hospitality mm. are kind of, you know, they're the essential things. Yes. They're the things that really matter. But so many people in those spaces, they're passionate, they're enthusiastic. This is like their life's work. They're not necessarily kind of business systems, process optimization, you know, kind of people. So the amount of um, positive impact you can have on their day to day in terms of like not doing stuff they hate, but also make it viable for them to be in business mm. and you know, express their creativity and all of these kind of smaller businesses and hospitality and food, they're like the character of a country, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you've just got the mass-produced chains of food and, and service. That's exactly right. And that's what really drew me into it was, you know, talking to all my favorite restaurants, talking to all my favorite food and beverage brands, and that they all needed help and I could help them. And they, you know, they make my life a joy. Um, on a daily basis. And wow, this is a great opportunity to work with them. And so, you know, you touched on something really important there, which was the, at zero, we had to make it fun and cool and, and interesting. And the, we have the reverse problem here, which is these are fun, cool, amazing brands, sexy. There's, you know, food and beverage. Everyone loves it. Hospo, you know, everyone loves to go out to eat. So that wasn't the challenge. It's the business side. That's the challenge. Um, and to really get them to um, pay attention to what they're doing. And, and it's not, you know, the reality is that computers really should be doing a lot of this stuff. And so it really is about automating, just getting rid of, you know, the double, triple, quadruple handling. And so, you know, we're a B2B marketplace and e-commerce platform. So that means that we're connecting a buyer and a supplier together. And so right now, you know, everywhere around the city still to this day, like still pen and paper and spreadsheets are our main competitor. And so if you go into any bar, restaurant, cafe, you go in the back room, there will be a piece of paper stuck up on the wall that lists hand scrawled um, all their suppliers. And it'll be like, uh, Jane, you know, phone number scratched out. No, 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 it's John. It's uh, now this number. And so uh, it is this absurd way of doing business and to train a sta you know, new staff member is, is incredibly difficult and the turnover in hospitality is brutal. And so training somebody up to figure out all that, you know, decipher everything is uh, no small feat and time consuming and, and pointless, absolutely bloody pointless because they could be, if they have it all on their phone and they just tap a button and place the order, that order is coming from the supplier's catalog. It's their digital catalog of what's in stock right now, the exact product code, the exact full description of the, the, the product. Um, you can't make a mistake, really. And, uh, and then the supplier on the other end doesn't have to do all the admin of, what did you, did you say six? Okay, six of those, and they'll put it in. And it was, they wanted six cases, not six bottles. And so now they're short. And now they can't actually, you know, the menu is, is short. Um, and so uh, it's really making all of those things disappear. And that is, to me, like, so design and technology, the technology should be invisible. Nobody should, I hate technology probably more than anyone. It fails all the time and it makes no sense all the time. So if we can get rid of that, and make it this magical thing that like you click one button and that's, you know, a light switch is the ultimate technology. I just walk in the room, flip a switch and boof, lights come on. I don't know, need to know how incandescent lights or, you know, vacuums, uh, uh, the, 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 the grid, the power grid and how electricity is generated. I don't need to know any of that. I flick a switch and a light comes on. And so that's the objective of, of great design is to make it that simple. Um, and that you don't even think about it. You just, it just happens magically. What have you done with this journey as a CEO, co-CEO and co-founder to design in 
those kind of ideas to how the company works. Mm. Like, yeah, that, that's a really cool opportunity from having, you know, been part of so many companies to be able to then make that move. And I don't think there are enough people who come from design and brand and marketing mm. who become CEOs and Amen. board people. <laughs> like, there could be so many boards right now we're getting some design thinking, some marketing and mm. brand thinking on could change their trajectory. But for some reason, it's not something that gets put there. No, it's an afterthought. Yeah. And it's really the the last thing like, oh, okay, we, we've done all the hard work. Now you just make it look pretty. Mm. And that still is pervasive. Even though Apple, the most successful, most valuable business ever created in humanity is design-led. Is their, their success and their competitive advantage is all about design. Still, people have not gotten the message that design is the way to uh, to change people's behavior, to make products that people love. Um, and it's a shame. It's really, it, it really breaks my heart. And so that to me was, you know, it was interesting. So when we um, started the business, when we, when we, you know, I decided to, you know, actually do Upstock, um, I was still like of the mind. I knew that the business needed a CEO. And I, I was like, cool. I you know, like part of me was like really hankering to do it. And I felt like I could really do this, but I was really guarded about my burnout. And I was like, this being a CEO is completely all consuming. And I don't think I'm ready for that. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I was still surfing a lot. Like it was just like to switch gears like that was, you know, not super exciting. And so I contacted Duncan Ritchie, who he and I worked together really closely at Zero. He was uh, chief product officer. And um, and I ran the idea past him because I just wanted a sanity check. I was like, I, I think this is absolutely amazing opportunity. Unbelievable that nobody's doing it. Uh, and then, but I just wanted to hear what he thought. And if he was interested, if if he thinks it's a good idea, would he be interested? And, um, and yeah, sure enough, he thought it was a great idea and he was interested. And then we, like, in terms of forming the company, uh, I, you know, realized that I don't want to just walk away from this. I feel like I have a hell of a lot to contribute to it. And it, uh, you know, I had, I already felt some ownership in it. And so, uh, I felt that a co-CEO arrangement would be really, um, a, a, could be an amazing um, way to go. And so that way we, you know, and it's been, and the thinking behind it is, is that it's a very complimentary, complimentary pairing. So Duncan is very analytical. Um, he's very operational. He's, uh, you know, with uh, finance and legal, he, he, you know, he, he really gets into the weeds. Um, and then, you know, he's also great at product, obviously. Um, and then for me to bring, you know, that, of user experience, the brand experience, the go-to-market, how do we actually get people excited about this? So that pairing seemed really powerful. And so, you know, I think that that's a great way for, you know, people to bring design into a, a business, into a platform. And it's made, you know, a huge impact, obviously, on our business, and it's been a phenomenal combination. What advice would you have for people who are interested in, you know, who are trying to make a case for, you know, that feature that's really hard to build but will kind of change the trajectory of an idea or, you know, being the champion for the customer experience in places where it's currently forgotten? Yep. Yep. So, um, you know, my kind of, my main advice is to dream big, start small and stay humble. And so the dream big, it's something I'm, I'm just always shocked that people don't, my, my first instinct is what is the magical solution? What is the game changing, the world changes fantasy version? Start there and then you can work your way backwards. If you just start with like, what's the next least amount of work that I could do, then you're going to go on a very different trajectory that's just kind of patching things together and you won't see the promised land. You won't see a better tomorrow. You'll just see, you know, a better second from now. And um, so that, that dream big, but you do, like once you've established, okay, here's the dream come true. And this is for, you know, a product, 
for how you want to form a company, how you want your life to be, where you want to live in the world, what you want to do with yourself. Dream big. And then start small. You know, that's the only way you can do it. You, you, all, you, you, know, you don't really have a choice but starting small. And to be humble about that, that it's going to be shitty. Um, your, you know, your first few steps are just going to be awkward. You're stumbling through it. It's messy. It's confusing. You don't know what you're doing. You feel like an idiot. You, you're not entirely wrong about that. And um, you just have to, you know, persist. And that, you know, I love this idea of the key to success is showing up, that so many people just give up and that, that for me, when things are, you know, I feel like we're, we're hitting the wall or things are feeling awful and they're crumbling around me. Um, you know, I just, all I, all I can do is show up and that's important. Just showing up is so incredibly important. Um, and you know, Keep it basic. And so there, there is a bit of this weird um, hype in Silicon Valley and startup culture, which is like the heroic founder or the heroic startup people that are work 80 hours a week and they, 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 you know, they kill their competition and they come up with these great innovative things. And that to me is, you know, I think a bit of a mythology and also a dangerous one. And you know, I do think that it is really just um, showing up, but I would, my, my number one advice is dream big and start small. And as a final thought, Philip, mm. what will success be for you and for Upstock? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, they're, they're kind of intertwined, but they're not necessarily exactly the same. So for, for Upstock, it is ultimately you know, changing the way the entire global supply chain works. That's all. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and so reducing waste and optimizing it, automating it. Um, we have the technology. It's all there. It's, it's within our uh, grasp and within our capability. But again, you have to start small. You have to chink away at it and just, you know, one customer at a time. Um, and then for me personally, you know, it's interesting the, when I left zero and I wanted to give back and I wanted, so I was helping these founders and I was, I wanted to teach at university and I thought that would be a really great way to give back. And I realized actually that I was kind of hitting walls there. I was really frustrated. Again, like I said, the founders not listening to me and the university was just, you know, bureaucratic and not fun to deal with. Um, I realized that actually starting a company is the best way to, you know, help transfer this talent or skills and experience knowledge to other people on the team and that they'll go on to found great companies. And in the process, we will transform thousands and then millions and then maybe billions of businesses around the world. And that, you know, like it's, it's been interesting being in, you know, founding a business in the middle of COVID is, uh, and we've had headwinds all the way along. And so have our customers, obviously. They've, it's been brutal. And the fact that we, so we've been growing three, four X year on year, phenomenal growth. And we're helping our customers. The, the reason we're doing that is because we're helping our customers do that, that we're helping them grow and we're helping them optimize. So keep their costs down and, and win new customers and, so that to me is passing it along. And so, you know, I, I, when I, you know, run out of energy, like I'm, you know, so I still find a balance. So I still surf, I still, you know, travel, I still wanted. And that was, you know, when we founded the company, the first thing we did was um, create our values. And that was something that we did late, quite late at zero. And it wasn't, it was, it was kind of not a typical idea at the time. And so it was really establishing the blueprint. How do you want to, what are the rules of the company, the, the world, the universe that you want to, you know, create? And um, so uh, redefining success was one of the principles that we established that we don't want to do the 80 hour, you know, kill ourselves, burn out, um, that, that we want to do this, you know, go slow to go fast. Um, and that, that we, we want to look after each other and make sure that we're, you know, 
um, taking care of ourselves and our well-being. And, that, you know, so one of our, the, seek joy and purpose. And so that to me was when I was at zero was kind of, I was inducting new staff. And I said, your job is to make your job the coolest, funnest, greatest experience of your career. And that, you know, so that's baked into our company. And that is really, you know, that, that is still what I pursue is like, how do I find joy and purpose? And, but with that redefined success. So like, I, I don't have to do it by the playbook of, you know, startup insanity and, and we can do it a, a different way and we're always inventing it. And it's, it's, and it's really amazing to be able to live your dream and like, but you first have to dream it and then you can live it. Hey, thank you so much, Philip Bielinger, co-founder at Zero and at Upstock. Kilda. Kilda, thank you. Hey, so thank you so much to Philip, uh, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Teihei Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Inohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.